Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. So it's usually pretty hard to know whether Donald Trump will actually do what he says he'll do. But this week, he kept one of his biggest and most dangerous promises. He pulled the U.S. out of a historic nuclear deal with Iran. The Iran deal is defective at its core. So there was Trump being subtle as always. The deal had basically frozen Iran's nuclear program in exchange for lifting really harsh economic sanctions. And we'll get into this a bit later, but pretty much the entire world thought it was working and pretty much the entire world thought Iran was keeping its word, which is why the decision is one of those rare ones that pisses off pretty much everyone. The Europeans are angry because they begged him to stay in the deal and he didn't. The Iranians are angry because they thought they could trust the U.S. to remain in the agreement. They couldn't. And they're now threatening to resume their program. And there's talk of a new Mideast war. And so short term, that isn't just talk, because just in the past couple of months, we had an Iranian drone fly into Israeli airspace. Israel shot it down. Israeli planes flew into Syria. One Israeli plane was shot down. And last night, you had a really serious exchange of fire between Israel and Iran that was historic, because it was the first time Iran itself had fired at Israel. Iran fired 20 missiles into Israel. Israel shot down four of them. Israel responded with dozens of airstrikes across pretty much all of Syria. They struck 70 Iranian sites. This is a huge number. And just to give you a sense of how Israel sees this and talks about this, the Israeli defense minister, Avigdor Lieberman, said this, when it rains in Israel, it will pour in Iran. So, Zach, this was historic. Iran never fired on Israel before. But do they want war, either Israel or Iran? I mean, neither of them should. It doesn't make any sense for either side to get involved in a shooting war here, right? Israel's objective has been to contain Iran, but not necessarily get involved in a confrontation with it. Iran's goal has been to expand its influence, and getting involved in a shooting war with Israel in Syria would almost certainly lead to serious destruction of Iranian assets and a weakening of its position inside Syria. So on paper, it doesn't make any sense for these two parties to start, you know, really shooting at each other in a a full war, not just these alternating strikes. But the problem with war is that you can never tell what's going to lock one belligerent into a position where they feel like they can't back down. They've been making these threats at each other that nobody wants to look weak, nobody wants to look like they can be pushed around. And so you could see a kind of situation not unlike something like World War I, where nobody really wanted war, but a series of, you know, misperceptions, signaling, public posturing locks people into a broader conflict. Right. And these strikes, right, like the strikes that Israel carried out in Syria, they were against Iranian, like, military assets they had moved in Syria. So these strikes were essentially trying to make sure that there couldn't be a broader war in that sense, right? So Iran has moved all these assets throughout the Syrian civil war essentially to threaten Israel, especially in the Golan Heights region. We talked about this on our our previous episode of Worldly. Um, And so by targeting, you know, these assets, we heard the Israeli military talking about how they, you know, significantly set back Iran's presence in Syria. And that's the point, right? They're trying to make sure that if Iran wanted to mount a big, serious, major war, that they're setting back their ability to do that quickly. And I think in some ways, though, the risk is when you hit that many Iranian targets in Syria— you kill Iranians. So a previous Israeli strike killed seven Iranians. Iran, somewhat unusually, acknowledged that. This strike, we don't know the death toll. Some people say five, some people say 25. We don't know how many Iranians were part of it. But it's an interesting question of, if you're Iran, why acknowledge it? I mean, do you you acknowledge it because you want people in Iran to say, go forth, hit Israel? Do you acknowledge it because you want to save the world? If the deal is off, this is what taking the deal away means. 
But that to me is sort of the Iranian question of kind of why they're quiet is not one that I, in all honesty, that, that I really understand. No, no, I don't either. I don't think anyone does, but I think it's important. The one, one thing that you just said there that's really important to emphasize is that we're in a post-deal world. The Iran deal has been fundamentally unsettled by American withdrawal. And as a result, the different positions of the sides, which seemed very set in the sort of broader Israeli-Iranian conflict, are much less clear, much less stable than they were beforehand when the nuclear program seemed relatively contained. So now, and I've talked to a lot of Iran experts about this, they all say, we don't know what's going to happen next. The framework we use to understand the entire Middle East has been unsettled. Right. So we have this Iran deal. And the whole kind of one of the arguments for pulling out of it is that it, it didn't go, you know, far enough. It wasn't strong enough in terms of curbing Iran's other bad behavior, like, you know, supporting proxy militias in Syria and other places around the Middle East. You know, this is a bad deal. It basically allowed Iran to get more money, more cash to threaten, you know, the, the whole region and especially Israel. So it's a bad deal because it made Iran more dangerous. So we pull out and then there's like actual potential war. So it seems kind of the opposite effect that they were going for, right? Like, if the Iran deal is bad because it made tension and conflict and war more likely, and the day we pull out of it, like the next day, there's actual strikes on each other, seems like maybe not the intended consequence. It's almost like this was a terrible, nonsense decision. Definitely seems a little bit like that, Zach, yes. But from the Israeli point of view, they were one of the few people in this who felt like winners. They were one of the few people from this deal who felt like, get rid of the deal, things will be better. Europe was one of the people who felt infuriated by the deal. Europe was a continent that both the EU as an organization, big countries like Germany, France, Britain, felt the deal was working. And they not only sent people here, in the case of France, Emmanuel Macron, Trump's best friend, Angela Merkel, Trump's not best friend, Boris Johnson and his amazing hair. Boris Johnson, like Netanyahu, went on Fox and Friends to try to just get to Trump directly. The British foreign minister, Boris Johnson. Right. The, yeah, Boris being a somewhat deceptive name for a British person, not a Russian one. But they are so, so angry at the U.S. And then the question is, does the anger at the U.S. mean they stay talking to Iran? And if so, what happens? Like, what do they offer the Iranians that makes Iran want to stay in the deal? What does Iran offer Europe that makes Europe want to stay in the deal? That's the sort of next question. Right. So one thing that's important to understand in all of this is that the American market getting access to it was never the real incentive for Iran. It was the European market. There's been, before the deal and for decades, very, very little trade between the United States and Iran owing to hostilities going back to the Iranian Revolution. Europe, however, before these sanctions, had a pretty robust trade relationship with Iran, and European companies have already started moving in in the years since the deal was signed. So Iran really wants access to European markets, and Europe is in a position to at least in part, because, you know, they control their markets, give Iran what it wants in exchange for staying in the deal. The problem is that American sanctions also affect Europe, and that's part of why they're so angry. Right. Yeah. So just to be clear what we're talking about here. So by pulling out of the deal, the U.S., Trump, is reimposing these sanctions that we had taken off originally, right? We're putting sanctions saying you can't do business with, you know, these Iranian banks and et cetera. The problem is that Europe, if they want to continue to do business, because, again, they haven't pulled out of the deal, they haven't reimposed their own sanctions, they could end up getting caught by the U.S. sanctions because the U.S. isn't just sanctioning Iran. It's saying you can't do business with any of these kind of companies, right? So it could end up hitting French companies in particular, so Total, the huge gas oil giant, Peugeot, uh, Renault, like the French car makers. 
that's why Europe is mad, right? It's not just like, hey, you bad guys, you pull out of the deal. Like they have a literal cash stake in this game beyond just the broader like nuclear issue. And you have also a moment, this was just yesterday, where the new ambassador to Germany, Rick Grinnell, who had just presented credentials, which is the dorky way that ambassadors become actual ambassadors, was on Twitter hours after he became ambassador to say German companies should pull out immediately, which was interpreted pretty much everywhere in Germany as a direct threat from the U.S. A former German ambassador to the U.S. said that and said, like, here's a piece of advice, pro tip, don't threaten the country you've just come to. And Jen, you're right. It's secondary sanctions is the phrase people use because the, the targets of the initial ones are the companies doing business with Iran. And the stick is those companies can't do business with the U.S. So if you're a French oil company like Total, if you do business with Iran, you, Total, cannot do business with an American bank, an American financial institution, and America has the biggest of those. So that's kind of the stick. The stick is against European companies and European giants in different sectors. And Zach, you and I were kind of nerdy out on this a little bit yesterday, but European governments have some ways potentially to try to shield their companies from this. Let's nerd out for a second on what it is they could do. Yeah. So there's something uh, that was created in the 90s called a blocking law. Which it sounds like it's from football. Right. You'd think. Smart but ball. no, it's not a regulation about offensive lines. What it does is allow Europe to essentially shield its own companies from being affected by the U.S. sanctions by ordering them under European law to not comply with U.S. sanctions and to ignore them. Otherwise, they face their own domestic penalties, which are worse. And so, in effect, they're saying, you ignore the U.S., go on and keep doing your thing. And America, we dare you to start a really serious trade conflict and punish our companies for complying with our own law. It's not clear if they can do this legally. In the 90s, it was about Cuba and, and to a lesser extent, Iran, and the U.S. sort of went along with it. But now, obviously, the Trump administration seems a little hot to trot on putting in secondary sanctions on Iran. Aren't you way too young to use the phrase hot to trot? Not in this case, no. <laughs> Thanks, uh, we're Grandpa Zach. We're talking about blocking regulations here. Like, you know. So it could end up yeah. at the WTO, right? It could end up at the World Trade Organization. It's like, possible. This gets really technical really fast. And right. even like trade and sanctions experts are trying to figure out exactly how right. this would but play it, out. It could start a fight. Like, yeah. not a trade war necessarily, but it could start some real shit between Europe and the U.S. Right. But so, like, <laughs> In sort of, technical terms, some real shit. The big picture here is that the Europeans are trying to convince the Iranians not to restart their nuclear program. To do that, they need to make it in the Iranian interest to not withdraw, which means getting access to European markets and being able to do business with European companies. But the Americans are mucking about with this whole thing, which could screw up Europe's capability to keep the deal going. This is why most experts think the deal is likely to collapse. And the deal itself, and it's an important point just to briefly pause on, had nothing to do theoretically with missiles that Iran's firing at Israel, nothing to do with Iran funding militias. But if you gave sodium pentothal to the Obama guys when they were signing the deal and to the Iranians, the Obama guys would say, this is the gateway drug. And at the end of it, there'll be some closer ties with Iran. That didn't happen. Iran would say, this is the gateway drug where we start to really see our economy boom. And that didn't happen. And also, so, sodium pentothal doesn't actually work. <laughs> Jen. Hot take. Weighing in on, not a thing. Jen, interrogation expert over here. Clearly. But you have a situation where, in actuality, the Iranian economy, again, to use a Jen technical term, sucks. The value of the Iranian currency, the rial, has plunged and remains very low. On the other end, Iranian unemployment and inflation are very, very high. Europe has actually not signed many deals with Iran, kind of to the surprise of everybody. So neither side has gotten kind of in a pullback macro sense where they thought they would get. So when we talk about the deal collapsing, 
the deal has worked on the nuclear side. And obviously, that's hugely, hugely important. But the kind of other tack on things people thought would come haven't come. Yeah, I want to take issue with that framing a little bit because it's not that there were like these secret objectives that are what everybody really wanted. The, there, there were, you know, other things that people wanted to get out of this deal. But the fundamental purpose of the Iran nuclear deal was to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon and from advancing their nuclear program to the point where they could might get be able, one really yeah, quickly. Could get one really quickly. Like to do to prevent North Korea from happening in the Middle East. And it did that. Not only did it do that, it did that better than anyone possibly could have anticipated before the deal was inked. If you talk to any nuclear expert, they'll tell you the degree of intrusiveness that the inspections had to enforce the restrictions on Iranian enrichment were incredibly high, historically high. No nuclear agreement had ever been this strict. That some of the deal's terms expired after 10 years, but others and more important ones lasted for up to 25 years. I read one expert say this would have prevented Iran from even coming close to a nuclear weapon until 2041. Right. So here's the thing, though. So Europe is trying to kind of sort of negotiate still with Iran to stay in this deal and make this happen, which, like you said, the U.S. is mucking it all up. Another technical term. But if that goes badly, right, like Iran has straight up said, if we can't figure this out, if we can't make this deal work, we will restart our industrial enrichment, as they phrase it. Like, we will restart enriching uranium, which is the thing that you need to do to start getting a potentially viable nuclear weapon. And we've talked now a little bit, thankfully, about the short term. We'll talk soon about the long term. But first, a very quick break. Hello, I'm Ezra Klein, host of The Ezra Klein Show, and I would love if you checked it out. It is a weekly conversation with the people shaping our world, our politics, our culture, people like ta Coates, Hillary Clinton, Mark Zuckerberg, and Jaron Lanier. These are conversations you won't hear anywhere else, conversations at the intersection of, of technology, of culture, of politics, of governance, and that are hopefully getting at the ideas that are changing our society. So I'd love if you would give the podcast a try. You can find The Ezra Klein Show wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk long-term, not what's happening today, not what's happening next week, but what's happening now that Donald Trump has a new cabinet full of officials who don't like the deal, have never liked the deal, think that Iran's government should be overthrown, and are willing to use force to do it. So here from 2015 is John Bolton, who's now Trump's national security advisor. He's on TV to talk about a very subtly titled op-ed he'd written called To Stop Iran's Bomb, Bomb Iran. I'm afraid the choice we face, which is very unpalatable, is the military strike versus a nuclear Iran. And as unpalatable as the military strike option is, Iran with nuclear weapons is far worse. So, Jen, there had been this talk all along of adults in the room who were going to keep Donald Trump from his worst impulses. Two of those adults are gone. John Bolton now, theoretically, one of those adults. What does that tell us that you have this man with his wondrous mustache and his wondrous view of bombing Iran, now the main advisor of Donald Trump? Well, the fact that you have John Bolton, who in that clip we just heard described a military strike on Iranian nuclear facilities as fucking unpalatable, like, that is the understatement of the century. We're not talking, yeah, maybe we have an awkward meeting or something. We're talking about literal military conflict with a very, very powerful country whose military is very strong, right? It's not as strong as the U.S. military, but— it's a very dangerous thing we're talking about, and he just kind of throws this around. And so, you know, when you talk about decision-making here, if you have someone like Trump who 
doesn't necessarily seem to understand the kind of broader implications of massive military conflict and has threatened things like you know destroying an entire country when it was with North Korea. And now you have someone else who is an actual policy expert who Trump maybe or may not trust. I don't know. But I mean, you have a very, very hawkish man now whispering in Trump's ear, yeah, we should bomb Iran. That's not good in any stretch of the imagination. Do you know what else makes me angry about that clip, like really angry, is that prior to the Iran nuclear deal, there really was a choice between letting Iran get a nuclear bomb or get really close to it or war. Those were the two options. The reason the deal felt so urgent and was such a huge priority in the last administration was because nobody wanted either of those two outcomes. You right. needed a third option, some kind of negotiated end to Iran's nuclear program. And we had it. We had it. Up until this week, there was a really effective, very intrusive system designed to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear bomb. And then John Bolton comes in, he demands that we tear it up, he gets what he wants, and now we're back to the terrible goddamn choice that this was supposed to avoid in the first place. It's infuriating. But Zach, how do you feel about this? Like, let, let us know. Not good, Yoki. D don't hide it. Well, and John Bolton had this op-ed just, I think it was today or this week, saying that, you know, basically the Iran deal, you know, didn't work and it wasn't working and, and that's why, you know, we had to pull out, it, which is just factually incorrect by every measure, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, who is in charge of making sure that Iran is in compliance with the deal, has said, yeah, Iran is doing the things that it's supposed to be doing. The deal is working. Israeli security experts, Israeli military experts, Israeli intelligence officials have all said, both on and off the record, the deal is working. We should stay in the deal. This is a good thing. And Jotten Bolton just comes out and says, yeah, it totally wasn't working. That's why we had to pull out. Was the deal perfect? No, of course not. Could it have been stronger? Maybe. Could they have gotten that actual deal? Maybe not. I mean, I think it's also worth noting that the deal was negotiated, obviously, by Barack Obama, by the administration, signed in 2015. But even pre-Obama, you know, Zach, to your point about I'm not as caffeinated, so I may not say quite as with such passion, but it wasn't just Obama who didn't want war and so war is the alternative. Near the end of the Bush administration, Israel came to Bush. I mean, they had a very close relationship, as they do now, with the Republican president and said, give us bunker buster bombs. Give us the smartest bombs you have in the American arsenal. And Bush said no, because Israel, that was not a sort of, hey, maybe give it to us so we can do something in the future. That was, hey, give it to us so we could bomb Iran. And Bush, a pretty hawkish Republican, thought this is a shitty idea. Flash forward, Trump, an even hawkier Republican president, thinks, yeah, maybe go ahead. And what's striking to me about this, you know, Bolton has influence, obviously, but this is one of those few issues and few areas where Trump has been consistent. When the deal was signed, he bashed it on Twitter. When he campaigned, he bashed it in the campaign. Now as president, he's tearing it up. So Bolton matters, obviously. Mike Pompeo, the new secretary of state, matters, obviously. But this was Trump. Trump hated this thing since it was signed, said he would get rid of it. And now he's gotten rid of it. But I think it kind of raises a related question, which was, if you talk to the Obama guys who negotiated it, they talked about sanctions, you know, this punishing economic sanctions as a means to an end, right? And the end was get around to the table so they will talk and sign a deal. And as you as you both made a point, it did. Trump seems to think sanctions are just the end, that they don't bring you someplace. You just keep hitting them again and again and again and again into the definite future. So talks, no talks, maybe there are talks. But that fundamental misunderstanding of sanctions to me seems like the root of a lot of this. Well, I'm worried that Trump is taking the wrong lessons from his experience with North Korea, in part, right? So in that case, there was, you know, 
talk of war, really close confrontation, new U.S. sanctions. And like his sense of that is my scariness and anger and new pressure brought the North Koreans to the table. That is not necessarily what happened. And certainly North Korea has very important and salient differences with Iran. Right. So in this case, Trump may be thinking, you know, if I just do the same thing, I bluster and I threaten, I can get Iran to come back to the table, too. Now, that's possible. But the thing is with North Korea, he hasn't accomplished anything in terms of concrete nuclear nonproliferation agreements. In this case, he's now torn up a concrete nonproliferation agreement in the vague hope that sanctions could produce something better when they honestly won't be as strict as they were during the Bush and Obama eras where there was international buy-in for sanctions on Iran. Yeah, I think that's the point. Yochi, I don't know if I totally agree that he doesn't, that Trump doesn't think that these sanctions, that there's an end in itself. I do think, as far as I can tell, the logic, like Zach just said, is, you know, put these harsh sanctions, we'll put even more sanctions that we'll do like we did with North Korea, right? We'll sanction the hell out of you to the point that we'll just break you and then we'll threaten military action. And then watch, guys, I can get a real deal. Like I can get a better deal. And if that is the plan, maybe it works, right? It It's possible. I, I don't necessarily think it's entirely likely, but I also didn't think he was going to get to sit down with Kim Jong-un and it looks like that's happening. So what the hell do I know, right? But I do think it, it is some vague kind of strategy, whether it's particularly well thought out or reasonable in the context of Iran, which, like Zach just very eloquently laid out, is not North Korea uh, in any stretch of the imagination. It remains to be seen whether that will produce similar results at all or whether he just essentially shot ourselves in the foot and now we have, like, less leverage. And, and so Trump gave a big speech from the White House awkwardly from the diplomatic room, which is sort of an ironic name for a room when you're talking about getting rid of diplomacy. Just to kind of paint the picture, you have reporters who are in there. The sound you were hearing was the click of many reporters taking the same photo of Donald Trump. But Trump had just at this point signed the proclamation pulling America out of the deal and was just kind of waving it around. And he was asked a kind of obvious question. Mr. President, how does this make America safer? How does this make America safer? And he had a not terribly convincing answer. Thank you very much. This will make America much safer. Thank you very much. Well, I'm convinced. <laughs> right. So how will you make America safer? It'll make America safer. I mean, Jen, you know, you're, I think, being uh, kind and generous and diplomatic as you often are being the kind, generous, diplomatic, soft-spoken person you are. But where is the policy? I mean, it's not like he said, we're going to get out of this and we're going to do this, 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 and this. Like, if you're going to be generous to Donald Trump, you sort of touched on this a little bit, but like, walk through. If you're generous to Donald Trump, what does Trump do from here? Well, I mean, he did say, you know, we're going to reimpose sanctions and we're going to put new sanctions on. What those new sanctions are, we're still not really clear. Um, there was this sort of amazing press call with uh, some people in the White House and I think uh, at the State Department with all these reporters, like, asking these details about, like, well, you know, how, have we worked this out with our allies? Like, what are we doing? And it was kind of a shit show. Like, they were like, yeah, we haven't really worked through that. And we're not, you know, reporters and diplomats were were listening into this call and asking questions. They didn't seem to have very clear answers. So it seems like beyond this first kind of step of reimposing sanctions and maybe putting new sanctions, it's just kind of a vague idea that we'll try to get a new deal. But the Europeans are not super excited about getting a new deal. They want the deal that we currently have. Maybe we could do some side deals, right, to address the the flaws that Trump pointed out and that other experts have legitimately pointed out. Like, yeah, it didn't deal with Iran's testing and 
development of ballistic missiles, which are the delivery systems for the nuclear weapons. So they're related. It doesn't, you know, try to do anything to curb Iran's malign activities is the phrase I think everyone's agreed to use, apparently, um, in the region, you know, support Giving for, weapons to bad people. Right. Support for, for Shia militias, you know, throughout the region who attack, you know, the U.S., who attack Israel, things like that. Yeah, like those are legitimate concerns that the deal did not, by design, did not address. But the idea that he could just do this sanctions thing and not really do much, like what else? Like there's no, okay, and we're also going to do this, this, and this. Like there's no plan that's been laid out. It was just this thing and now we're done. I did a speech. Good luck, everybody. I want to focus in on this press call that you were talking about, Jen. It was really the State Department one. It's it's really remarkable. Yeah. There's one exchange where... A reporter asks an unnamed senior State Department official if they had spoken to European allies about what happens in the next few days. And the State Department official says, no, we only talk to our European allies about how to fix the deal before we pull out. And the reporter's like, wait, are you serious? And he's like, yes, all we did was try to negotiate a better deal before we pulled out. So what that means is they just spent all their time trying to do the opposite of what they were doing. That is to say, stay in the deal. Right. Not talk about what you do the day after you pull out. That is essentially an admission that there is no strategy for coordination with the allies that we absolutely need to mount any kind of serious long-term pressure campaign on Iran. So they've de facto admitted they have no idea what they're doing in the long run and have no plan for reimposing comprehensive international sanctions that could prevent Iran from, you know, slowly reconstituting. And we also saw this kind of strange instance yesterday. One of the concerns about pulling out of the Iran deal and if Iran starts suddenly rushing to actually develop a bomb is that it would set off an arms race in the Middle East, which would be maybe not the best thing ever for the Middle East, all over the place, everyone to have nuclear weapons pointed at each other. Uh, Israel already has them. But Saudi Arabia has promised over and over, they did again yesterday, to say that, yeah, if Iran gets the bomb, we're going to try to get the bomb too. And there was this amazing kind of press conference with Sarah Huckabee Sanders and the White House press secretary. People were asking, like, do you have an, like, any announcement to make about our policy? Like, if Saudi Arabia wants to get a bomb, do we support that? And she's like, no, I have no new announcement about that, nothing. And there was just kind of no real, like, no, we definitely don't want an arms race to happen. But again, there's no like plan to how to address that and like very clear thought through policy statements about not want to kick off an arms race. You know, we will handle this. Everything's going to be fine. It was just like, yeah, I don't know. We'll wrap there. There's some great content on Vox.com that gets into the winners and losers from this deal that gets into in some detail the possibility of an Israeli-Iranian war in Syria. Our friends at Today Explained have a really good episode that is almost in its entirety also devoted to parts of what happens now that Trump has pulled out. Come find us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, subscribe. Come find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, any other place you might find a podcast. Thank you to our producer, Bird Pinkerton, to our social media manager, Julie Bogan, Jen, Zach. Pleasure as always. 